Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is May 15th, 2017, and I have two guests, economist Don Boudreau of George Mason University and economist Mike Munger of Duke University. This will be Mike's 32nd appearance on Econ Talk and Don's 13th. We know each other pretty well, and I've learned a great deal from both Don and Mike about today's topic, which is emergent order. Uh, now, we talk about emergent order, about, about the topic on the program quite a bit. So I thought it'd be useful to devote an entire episode just to understanding it uh, as best we can in, in about an hour. The other motivation for the topic is that I've written a poem. Uh, it's called It's a Wonderful Loaf. I've had the poem animated and created a website around the ideas in the poem. And that poem is about emergent order. Uh, the website is wonderfulloaf.org. Uh, and at some point in the episode, I'll recite the poem. But please watch the animation and read the annotated version or some of the other materials we've put up at wonderfulloaf.org to help you understand the ideas. And I hope this conversation will be part of that. Uh, those resources. Here's how this is going to work. Uh, I'm going to give a lengthy introduction. By lengthy, you know, it's, it's a monologue. It might go uh, 10, 15 minutes to the idea of emergent order. And then the three of us are going to talk about it. Uh, so it's less of an interview, more of a conversation than we usually do here, do here on Econ Talk. So here we go. So I want to suggest there are three kinds of things in our lives. There are more than three, but I want to divide them up into three. The first we know very well. It's part of our daily life. If we want to accomplish something, we have to have the intention of accomplishing it and then execute the steps needed to make that thing happen. So if I want to do the dishes, if there's dish, dirty dishes in my sink, I've got to think, oh, I better go do the dishes. And then I've got to have a plan to execute the cleaning of the dishes. That could be combining soap, a sponge, and hot water. It could be loading the dishwasher, adding soap to the dishwasher, and turning it on. And at the end, I'm going to get, if all goes well, clean dishes. Uh, but I have to do something to make that happen. I have to execute and intend a set of actions that make the dishes clean. They're not going to clean themselves. And that's true for a huge range of stuff in my life, certainly around my house, such as um, uh, shoveling snow or uh, raking leaves or arranging my bookshelves, keeping my, my bookshelves neat. All those things require a plan of some kind, an intention, and then some kind of execution of that plan, some kind of action on my part. And those things are very nice. And people, of course, do things for me in my life like that. So just to take a pleasant example, someone might leave me a uh, loaf of banana bread on my doorstep. And when I get that, I know that someone intended to make that loaf, went to the trouble of doing it, and I, get to, I, I, I should thank them. And the converse is also true, the negative side. If, some, if I find a bag of garbage in my yard, uh, I figure somebody has dumped garbage in my yard and I should be a little bit upset about it. I, I could blame them. There's somebody to blame. So this is a huge part of our life, things that human beings cause and we understand that they, they intended them and they happen. 
The second part of our life is things are things that we understand are not caused by human beings. Uh, it could rain tomorrow when I have a picnic planned, and that's going to be upsetting, but I'm not going to blame anybody. And if it's a beautiful sunny day, I'm not going to thank any person. I might be grateful to God. I might be grateful to the forces of nature or the earth, but there's no person involved in making it rain. I understand that. It's a part of my life that sort of goes along on its own. And I like to use the example that you know when the seasons change or when the earth goes around the sun, we don't have to lean into the curve for the earth to stay on orbit. Uh, it just happens by itself. My blood circulates by itself until I die. My breath comes without my volition or my intention. I don't have to think, ooh, when I, when I wake up tomorrow, I better make sure I'm going to be breathe. I'm going to breathe because I could forget. And of course, I don't have to remember or forget. It just happens. So there's these two things in our lives that we know inside out, and we tend to think of them as most of our experience. The things that people do to us, for us, things we do to or for ourselves, those are the things like the dishes. They're the things like uh, somebody leaving me a, a nice loaf of bread or a jar of honey, which somebody kindly did the other day. Those things are very straightforward. We understand them. Then they're the things that we call natural. We understand those too. Those are things like the seasons changing. Those are things like it raining tomorrow. Those are things like the honeybees that made the honey that my neighbor brought me. So those are the two extremes. In between, there's something kind of strange. And this is something that economists have been interested in since Adam Smith and a little bit before. Certainly an issue that F.A. Hayek spent a lot of time thinking about and that goes under the name of emergent order. And these are things that are caused by humans but and, and that appear to have an intention but actually don't. No one person intended these things to happen. They just sort of happen through the con concerted actions of all of us acting together. So I'll pick a, take a couple examples of those and then uh, we'll, we'll, we'll take a look at, at how this works and what drives it and when it doesn't work and what's good about it and what's bad about it and so on. So – the things that are caused by human action, but not by human design, which is close to the phrasing of Adam Ferguson, a contemporary of Adam Smith's, another Scott, who was interested in these phenomena. These things are, for example, language. No one is in charge of the English language. So no one decided that it's okay to use Google as a verb. Somebody used it. Somebody picked it up. And it got tossed around, and some people found it useful enough that they repeated it, and other people understood it, and they thought that was useful too, and they repeated it and used it again. So the English language, in fact, every language, is emergent. It's not designed. It's not under anyone's control. It may look like it is at times. There may be a committee in France for deciding what's good French, but that committee cannot stop people in France from saying le weekend for Saturday and Sunday, uh, even though the French uh, a formal official name is fin de semaine, end of the week. So language emerges. And of course, it has lots of imperfections. Uh, I like to use the word debt. I think I've used that on the program before. Debt is D-E-B-T. It should be uh, D-E-T. That B is just a waste. It has some informational advantage uh, in theory, but certainly when you're listening, the, uh, the, there's no reason to think of it as D-E-B-T. And you don't pronounce the B in any subtle way. It's just not, it's just gone. There are lots of parts of English that are archaic. There's lots of parts that would be useful if they were simpler or different. But you can't just fix it any way you want. And in particular, Google doesn't like that people use Google as a verb. And if I'm told that if you work at Google and use it as a verb in a memo, they get upset at you and they try to get you to fix it. 
But, you know, the fact is they can't, um, they can't do anything about it. They can't stop us. And uh, we, the group of us, all of us, the users of English somehow have created Google as a verb without any centralized top-down control. It emerges from uh, the bottom up. So another example, and this is the example I work, I talk about in my poem, is, and it comes from an, uh, a beautiful paragraph from Bastiat that I'll uh, put a link up to. Uh, how is it that in a great city, in a not-so-great city, a smallish, medium-sized city, cities of all, almost all sizes, almost all cities around the world, you don't have to go to bed at night worried that there's going to be bread in the morning. Uh, it just happens. Now, it doesn't literally just happen. It's not magic. It's not that no one's in charge of anything. There are Every baker is working hard to do the best that he or she can. It's not a uh, uh, some sort of um, thing that just sort of like the rain. It just sort of shows up. Uh, it's something like the banana bread, but it's not exactly like the banana bread. So my baker might do a great job. So that in my area of the city, there's going to be bread. But how is it that every baker does a good job? And how is it, more or less, not perfect, but how is it that there's enough flour in the city for all the bread that everybody wants, but there's also enough flour for all the pasta that everyone wants and enough flour for all the pizza that everyone wants and enough flour for all the beer and bourbon that everybody wants, and so which all come from wheat. So that's the puzzle of how that coordination, that organization takes place without any centralized control is something that we do en masse. We do as a group. The result emerges. No baker says, gee, I hope there's enough bread for everybody. The baker's just trying to make good bread, stock the baker's shelves, and, and get a decent price to cover the baker's costs. And yet somehow the result is enough bread, enough flour, enough pasta, etc. And that phenomenon of where it looks as if someone is in charge of allocating, say, flour to the whole city or rye bread, because you might really like rye, and you might worry, well, what if my baker doesn't make enough rye? What if my baker does, but somebody across town doesn't, and there's not enough rye for the whole city? No one's worrying about those set of, that set of problems, and yet somehow they get solved as if someone were worrying about it. And that is the phenomenon we're talking about. Uh, it's emergent. It's not under centralized top-down control. So here's the crazy thing. Uh, I, I thank my neighbor for the honey that she brought me. I, might, I would thank my neighbor for the loaf of banana bread on my, on my porch or my doorstep. But who do I thank for the fact that I can go to bed at night and not worry that about whether there's going to be enough bread tomorrow for everybody in the city of Washington or or Durham or San Francisco, New York, Paris, London. In most cities in the world, an exception would be Caracas, Caracas, Venezuela. We'll talk about that. But most cities in the world, there's bread every day for everybody. Now, it's not doesn't mean everybody has enough money to get the fanciest kind of bread they want. There's still people who are hungry. Uh, there's still people who don't get enough bread. But it's available every day on the shelf at a price, and it's a pretty good price. It's not extraordinarily expensive in most cities in the world. It's driven by the costs of providing it, and, and the, how that happens is, is, of course, a complex process we might talk a little about. But the point is, unlike the honey or unlike the loaf of bread and something like the rain or the sunshine, when it 
things work out really well, who do I thank? Who do I, who am I grateful for, for the fact that there's all this different kinds of bread and I don't have to just get like crummy white bread that we had when I was growing up as a boy? How did that change? Who was in charge of that? And the answer is nobody. So I don't have anyone to thank. I don't have anyone to blame if I wish there were more, even more kinds of bread. It's something like the rain. That is, it is self-organizing in some dimension. Of course, there's organization within the whole system. A baker has to hire people, has to buy ovens, has to buy yeast, has to, has to hire trucks to deliver the and raw materials to, get, to make the bread, the flour, and so on. But somehow that process works without centralized control, something like the rain. There's a naturalness to it, an organic nature to it, a bottom-up emergent aspect to it. So uh, now that's, the, that's my introduction to the concept. I'm now going to uh, recite the poem, and then I'm going to invite Don and Mike to respond to the, the basic sort of fundamentals. So Don and Mike, who've read the poem before, while I'm reciting, you might think about what you might uh, say, either agreeing or disagreeing with what I had to say, or some examples you might think might be more helpful. <clears throat> so here's the poem. Uh, title again is It's a Wonderful Loaf. If you look down upon a city with the widest bird's eye view, you might wonder how it functions. Who takes care of me and you? Who makes sure there's food for vegans and for carnivores as well? It seems like there's a wizard who's cast a magic spell. Just think of one small part. Who makes sure there's so much bread? You want rye, she wants ciabatta, or make it sourdough. Instead, a baguette or a croissant. It doesn't matter, don't you see? You get yours, and she gets hers, and I get mine. How can that be? One's buying a dozen bagels to grace an impromptu brunch. One's using food stamps for a simple loaf to make her children lunch. No matter the amount, the amount we require, no matter the choices we make, an army of workers is mobilized to fashion the bread we partake. The farmer who grows the wheat, the miller who grinds the flour, the baker and all the others who work hour after hour, they're all on their own, each one making independent decisions, but somehow their plans fit together with the greatest degree of precision. So there must be a czar of wheat and flour, of trucks and of bread and yeast to allocate and oversee and plan, at the very least, for the unexpected change. What if today's not like yesterday? It never is, though, is it? So who keeps chaos away? Because there's order all around us. Things look as if they're planned, like the supply of bread in a city, enough to match up with demand. And though flour is used for more than just bread, we never have to fight over where it goes and who gets what. So why do we sleep so well at night, knowing nobody's in charge? It looks like all is left to chance. And in New York or London, as well as Paris, France, no one's worried the shelves will be empty. We take supply for granted. But it's a marvel. It's a miracle. The world's somehow enchanted. Of course, the result's never perfect, but the system's organic, alive. Over time, fewer people go hungry and more and more bread lovers thrive. And if you're allergic to gluten, there's sellers who work for you too. Your choices expand and what you demand is created and waiting for you. I have my tastes, you have yours. We each have our own urges, yet somehow there's no conflict. A harmony emerges. Our dreams can fit together like a quilt that someone weaves us. But there isn't a weaver of dreams. Reality deceives us. And here's the crazy thing. If someone really were in charge to make sure that bread was plentiful, 
with the power to enlarge the supply of flour, yeast, and of bakers and ovens too? Would that person with that power have any idea of what to do? Could a minister of bread do even half as well? Would there be enough of every kind of bread upon the shelves? How could he know how much to make of each kind every day? There'd be shortages and surpluses and waste and much dismay. You might think the job is easy if the top sellers rye. Then for every variety, push production up that high, then no one's disappointed. Bread eaters will rejoice when they see that every bakery is filled with so much choice. Bread eaters, yes, but help. The forgotten pizza lover cries, all the flour's gone to baking bread. There's none left for the pies of pepperoni deep dish, thin crust, and Sicilian. You've solved the bread challenge, yes, but created another million problems. No problem. We'll just grow lots more wheat. But that means less of something else that people like to eat, which only makes the puzzle of the harmony around us much more puzzling. This order, this peace has to astound us. So many things we count on, yet no one's behind the curtain. No wizard, no controls, yet the supply of stuff, near certain. Every morning, the bakers rise early to make sure your bread is fresh. And the world gets more complicated, but the plans just continue to mesh. Every morning, the bakers rise early. They're not under anyone's command. Where in the anatomy textbooks can I view an invisible hand? The key to the process is prices and the freedom to shop where you want. Competition among all the bakers. Make sure that they rise before dawn to make sure the bread's near perfection, to make sure that the buyer's content. You don't have to know economics to know when your money's well spent. We know there's order built into the fabric of the world of nature, flocks of geese, schools of fish, and every boy and girl delights in how the stars shine down in all their constellations, and the planets stay on track and keep the most sublime relations with each other. Order's everywhere, yet we humans, too, create it. It emerges. No one intends it. No one has to orchestrate it. It's the product of our actions, but no single mind's designed it. There's magic without wizards, if you just know how to find it. So that's the poem, and we've gone through the idea, and I just want to say that, before I invite Don and Mike to comment, that I believe, um, I want to say two things. I believe this is the deepest idea in economics, uh, and I believe uh, that I wouldn't fully understand it if I hadn't spent hours talking to Don and Mike about it. So thank you for both of you for those conversations and for joining us today. So, Don, why don't you go first? Uh, thanks, Russ. Uh, happy to be back. Uh, <laughs> economics has always seemed poetic to me, and it seems even more poetic now. Um, I, I agree with you. The notion of spontaneous order uh, is indeed the most profound, single most profound uh, insight of good economics. Uh, it remains the insight that is most elusive to the general public. Uh, sadly, it remains an insight that's elusive to a lot of professional economists these days. Um I don't say that sarcastically. I say that more in a sense of, 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 of sadness. The, the, the inability, I think human beings are, we're evolved. Our minds are evolved to uh, seek intention, to see uh, uh, design uh, as precedent to order, conscious design as precedent to order. And to grasp the, the nature of spontaneous order is, is, is difficult. Uh, your, your poem does a nice job. Uh, uh, helping us to to, bet, to better see that. Uh, I, I see spontaneous order, not surprisingly, pretty much in the same way that you see it, which is pretty much the same way that, that uh, Hayek uh, saw it and explained it, which is not far different from the way that Adam Smith 
and other great economists have seen it and, and explained it. I'll just take this opportunity to add one other example uh, to your two, uh, and you know it's a favorite of mine, and that's, and that's law. Uh, we think of law as, most people think of law, as something that the state designs and imposes. Um, and in fact, as Hayek himself taught, um, law is another example of spontaneous order. The rules that we follow in our intercourse with each other are very seldom the result of conscious human design and imposition. These rules emerge spontaneously in the course of our interaction. And what governments do is sometimes they enforce these laws, sometimes they try to override these laws with legislation. We may agree that that, over, that attempt to override is, is, is beneficial, but laws themselves emerge uh, unintended from the, you know, they're the, they are the result of human action, but not of, of human design. And the relevance of this is uh, because people tend to see, because people do see or believe they see the state as the source of all law, uh, it's not surprising that people see without thinking about it, I think, the state as the source of, of order. Uh, people just don't think about it very deeply. And so when they go into the supermarket and see this amazing array of high quality and affordable products, the assumption is that there is some big plan out there uh, that someone is just, someone is, is, is carrying out. And so uh, in, it, we can adjust uh, with with state action, uh, the way that particular plan is being carried out, uh, w- without it is assumed any uh, bad consequences, and but but understanding that it's not designed uh, makes the appreciation of each individual action within it uh, a, a lot a lot deeper. I'm, I'm not being very articulate here. I I, I agree. Exactly uh, with your conveyance of, of of the notion of spontaneous order, and I agree again that it is the most profound insight in all of the social sciences, not just economics. Mike, well, uh, let me take a step back. Um, the idea of spontaneous order is a little bit controversial in economics, but I think it should be a subbranch of something we might call emergence. And the idea of emergence in philosophy is that an emergent property or substance arises out of some more fundamental entities, and yet they're novel or irreducible with respect to them. And that means that usually we don't understand the emergent property very well. We can look at the underlying parts and think that we do, and the mistake is to think we could start with the parts and end up with the result. Now, there's all sorts of examples, and in fact, I think future historians will talk about the summer of 2015 as Russ Roberts' prairie period. There were 10 different podcasts during the summer of 2015, I actually went back and counted, that mentioned the property, the the idea of prairies, and perhaps Joyce Kilmer in Reincarnation will write a poem that says, I think that I could never carry a thing as lovely as a prairie. But it, it, prairies are emergent phenomena. We understand, you could look at and measure in great detail all of the parts of it. You couldn't possibly build one. 
Now, if you ask a biologist about that, they would say, of course, that's true. We all understand that. If you ask a biologist about William Paley's watchmaker analogy, which in 1802 he said was a a proof of the existence of God, you're walking along and you see a watch, obviously there's a watchmaker. There's this complexity. The only way that could possibly happen is if it was designed. Biologists would then say, no, no, we understand that there are these processes by which we get emergent phenomenon that have none of the properties of the underlying parts. So life is a property, an emergent property of chemistry. Consciousness is an emergent property of the electrochemical activities of the brain, but it's not reducible to those things. So the question then is, why is it that those people who are most likely to dismiss any creationist account of biology reject the watch? They, they, they want to, to carry out the watchmaker analogy when it comes to social processes, because when they see markets, they want design. And it, 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 it actually tends to be inversely correlated. It's the people who are most sure that there's no such thing as a watchmaker in nature who want one in social processes. So I I think the most interesting origin of this was in a uh, a, a Arab thinker whose name was Ibn Khaldun. And in the 14th century, he published a book, a a book of writings, a scroll called Mukadima, the Prolegomenon. And I, I recommend it to readers because it's a shockingly modern view of what I think later thinkers, Hayek in particular, but a number of others, identified as the role of something called markets. Now, the name markets is sort of like calling life the result of these chemical processes that we don't understand. And Hayek is pretty clear about that. We really don't understand, most of us don't understand very well, why it, how it is that markets are able to coordinate all of the different activities and wants and disagreements that people have and reconcile those into some kind of order. But that's the thing that that emergent property gives us. So the, the, there's also uh, Mandeville the, uh, in the early 18th century who wrote about private vices and public benefits, how these things can reconcile themselves. So I, I think the nice thing about the poem is that it builds on and says in deceptively simple ways something that is very, very difficult to explain. And so the drawback may be that its apparent simplicity masks the underlying complexity of the claim. Yeah, I think that's a constant challenge we have as economists, and I'm going to push that a little little, uh, further, which is that one of the critiques you could make of that poem is it's too simplistic, not about the process, but about the the outcome, like it's so cheerful, it's spread everywhere, everything's great, and everything happens by on its own. And I, one of the things people complain about when they've read it is, oh, don't you need government? Oh, you, you, know, you think you don't need any government. But of course you do, do need government, or you, government's very useful in creating the rules of the game, in creating courts, in creating police, and possibly some forms of regulation, which we'll talk, to, talk about in a minute. But I want to make it clear that when I say no one's in charge – I don't mean no one's in charge at the bakery. Of course, someone's in charge at the bakery. And I don't mean no one's in charge at City Hall. They have certain things they're trying to do, too. Uh, what I want people to marvel at, and that's Hayek's word in the use of knowledge in society, when he talks about emergent order there and how prices coordinate economic activity, the marvel to me is that it works at all. Th- that's the phenomenon we want to be in awe of. That's the phenomenon we want to try to understand. How is it possible? 
that there's bread every day all around a city of different kinds in roughly the kinds that we want. That's the challenge. It's not uh, – it works magically. It's not total magic, but there's an enormous magical component that we don't understand or appreciate. The other thing I want to add is it's not always great. There's a lot of emergent order. We've talked about this many times on the program, but it's important to emphasize it here. There's a lot of emergent order that's not good. Uh, traffic is emergent. Uh, every day in my city where I live most of the year, which is Washington, D.C., uh, around 7 a.m., maybe a little earlier, till about 9 a.m., everybody drives slowly on the 495. Uh, they're going about 20, like they got a memo that said, go slowly. No person wants to go slowly. The combined results of everyone trying to go fast and too many of them at one time results in people going very slowly. That's a perfect example of emergent order. It repeats itself at around 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, no one wants that to happen. No one intends it to happen. Uh, if you asked, well, who's driving slowly? Well, isn't it the driver? The driver's got her hands on the wheel, her foot on the pedal, on the accelerator, and yet somehow we're all going 20. And that's our actions. It's not the result of any person's design. In fact, we all want something else. And yet that's what we get. That's a bad outcome. There are other outcomes we talked. Uh, Mike, you and I did an episode on racism and slavery and racist attitudes and general attitudes like racism, uh, things that we now look on with uh, disdain and neg negativity. Those were considered totally fine. And those attitudes, like the laws that Don was talking about, those emerged. Many of the laws that emerge from our daily interactions or the norms of our civilized life are glorious. Be grateful to people who are kind to you. Uh, don't be nice to cruel people. Try to stay away from them. Uh, smile when you greet someone. Uh, take off your hat if you lived in 1920 when you entered a room. Those are things that no one designed that emerged that were mostly good laws, but they're bad ones too. And it, it's not um, this phenomenon of, of emergence, of bottom-up complexity and orderliness is not always good. And it doesn't mean that, therefore, everything works great no matter what. doesn't mean anarchy. Uh, and I would say the same thing for the most famous metaphor in, in economics, which is the invisible hand. As we've talked about here before, Adam Smith used the phrase invisible hand uh, once in The Wealth of Nations and once in The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And neither time does it mean what we use it to mean today, which is a process that works on its own and has a pretty good outcome. Uh, that's Smith is interested in that very much. He writes about that a lot, but he doesn't call it the invisible hand. It's come to be called the invisible hand. And it's, I think, it becomes a straw man for people who want to intervene in markets by saying, oh, you know, you economists, some of you think that the invisible hand solves everything. Well, it doesn't solve everything. It doesn't solve lots of things. And there's a case to be made for regulation in lots of areas, pollution being one of them that I would, that I would mention, although maybe other ways of solving it other than certain kinds of regulation that we have. But certainly the invisible hand is not going to solve pollution all ma magically the way it solves effectively the way it solves the, the, sh the problem of how we're going to get enough bread in the city tomorrow. So that's not uh, – it's not perfect. The invisible hand doesn't solve everything. What's amazing is it solves anything, and I think it does, and I think we don't appreciate it. We don't understand it, and that partly is due to the fact, as Don points out, we have this sort of natural idea that we have to control stuff. Okay, I'm going to stop there again for a minute. Uh, Don, you want to react to anything I just said or anything Mike just said? Yeah, I want to say something in response to what you just said and in response to what Mike 
just said, I mean, obviously, I, I, I buy in a large degree, but I'm going to correct you in one small uh, uh, point, Russ. Um, it, 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 it does mean anarchy in the, sense, in the true sense of the term. It mean, an a- anarchy means no archon, yeah. and, and no overall planner. Uh, and so uh, it, it, to the extent that spontaneous order works, you know, the, the, the bread example uh, featured in, in A Wonderful Loaf, there is no archon overseeing the entire process of producing bread. So in a, in a very literal sense, that is anarchy, but it's not lawlessness. It's not anarchy is, the way that people use the term not, today. Right. It's not what, you know, ironically, the, 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 the spontaneous evolution of the meaning of the term anarchy has come to mean something different yeah. from its original meaning. Uh, uh, but it, uh, Mike is, 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 is wise to point out, and I've wondered about it too, as have a lot of people, that it is, it, it, it's interesting that the, the, there's a huge overlap between the people who are, are most eager to accept uh, Darwinian explanations of the natural world, uh, and, and I am one of those people, by the way, uh, but who also reject a spontaneous order explanation of the, of human society. Uh, and, and I'm not one of those people. I accept a spontaneous order. But I have to push back on, Donna, sorry for interrupting. I got to push back on you there and, and I'll let you continue. But I'm gonna, I don't think that's fair to them in a certain sense. I, I, I take the point in general, but I'm going to defend them because we don't have one of those folks on this program. We're kind of similar philosophy here. I think they would just say, well, we understand emergent order. We understand the invisible hand. We understand markets. They just don't work so well. And we have to fix them. We have to do things. We have to add regulations. You know, we don't have to. Um, we can't rely on on markets to produce, say, uh, high enough quality bread. So we need we need safety regulations. We need government inspectors. Uh, we need people to make sure that people don't adulterate the bread and uh, put in filler that's unhealthy. So they would argue. Visible hand does its own thing. Yeah, it's pretty good, but it's but it, it but it, it's dangerous because it needs to be. Uh, you have to keep an eye on it. You have to you have to put some top down regulation on top of it. So I think a lot of the people who we you and I disagree with in social processes, they consider themselves quote I think they would call themselves quote pretty free market, uh, but not as much as we are because they don't think it's as rosy and cheery as as we do. Fair enough. I, I, I take what. Mike, I'm mean, gonna I can't put words words in Mike's mouth, but let's put it this way: the the wonder that a lot of a lot of progressives have about the natural order of the of, of the order of the natural world, they don't bring to the social world. We we three in this podcast, those of us of our general economic uh, views, we marvel not only at the natural world but also at the at the economy. And I, and I, I, I don't believe that uh, uh, most progressives, to use a shorthand term, marvel as we do at the at the incredible complexity of the unplanned social order, which is the point of it's one of the points I take it of 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 your a wonderful it's a wonderful loaf to, to instill that wonder. Yeah. So but, let me just but, react but, to that. Then I'll, then I'll, let's let Mike have a word. Well, but I haven't gotten to my main oh, go point. Ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> so, but, but the, the difference what, 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 in the in the in the social world, we can indeed see people 
individuals making conscious choices about prices and product quality. And it's too easy to go from that. I mean, you know, every price, in fact, the prices are not set literally by supply and demand curves. Prices are set by sellers setting a price, buyers choosing to buy or not. And it's that human, it's, 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 it's that complex of human decision-making that allows people to say, ah, yes, see, the economy is the result of human design. And what, what, what good economists understand is while human beings are indeed at each of the levels setting prices, setting product qualities, determining whether to increase output or, or not, determining what to buy, what not to buy, uh, the, the overall result is, is, not, is not designed and could not possibly be designed, as you point out in the poem. Whereas in the natural world, uh, uh, most people understand there, there isn't a, 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 a conscious mind designing the, the thumb of, of the panda or the, the crane of the, of the neck of a giraffe. It, it, it just does happen. And so it's this, this, this confusion that people get when they actually see human beings acting. I remember years ago, um, uh, someone sent me a clip of Bill O'Reilly uh, uh, complaining about the prices of gasoline. And he wanted to know who sets the price of gasoline and government should talk to that person. <laughs> it, it was kind of really bizarre. This guy thought that there's someone who sets the price of gasoline. And I, I think that's a fairly common view that those of us who understand economics have a hard time understanding because we understand it to be so ludicrous. But a lot of people fall into that conscious, that, that way of seeing price is not as emergent, but as set by someone. Yeah. Mike? I think the difficulty that you rightly point out where it's not as I said, that people don't understand, it's that they would not accept the additional step, is because if, suppose I were to talk about the emergent property of crystals. So I, I melt, I dissolve a bunch of alum into hot water, and then I put a string in it, I put a seed crystal on it, and these crystals form, and it's a, a self-organizing system, but we understand how that happens, and the little alum molecules, they don't care uh, about what shape they're in. They just form into these crystals and they get pretty big and the molecules themselves don't have the shape of the crystals. So we end up with something that's emergent in the sense that it can't be reduced to that shape, but it produces something that's marvelous and beautiful. But the alum crystals don't care. The problem with explaining markets is you have to make an additional step. And I think it's the way that economics is taught that misleads many people who might otherwise be persuaded. The way economics is taught is to start with equilibrium, which means that all of the plans and purposes of individuals, which initially diverge, have now somehow magically been reconciled. And economics ought to start, and to be fair, Austrian economics does start at a different place. All these people start out with different plans and purposes. Some institution must now intervene. It's not like alum crystals. Some institution must now intervene in order to reconcile all these plans and purposes. And we have several choices, but we lump them into market processes and command processes. Market processes use the price mechanism to reconcile all these disagreements. And there's a fundamental insight. If you and I disagree about the value of something, we can probably agree on a price. So all prices 
that are agreed on probably result from a disagreement about value. You must value it more than I if we can agree on that price. Once you have that insight that prices reconcile disagreement, you now have a direction of adjustment. So Bastiat's observation about you know the stomach, which is in Paris, and the grain being produced far away, he actually says, well, we could all go out there with our carts and pick up the grain. That would be ridiculous. Really, our only two choices are the state can do this or middlemen can do it. We can call them entrepreneurs or it could be something as simple as middlemen. It's that not passive, very dynamic part of the process that standard economics misses and that only Austrian economics can provide the insight to. But if you go too far in that direction of subjectivity, you don't get a direction of adjustment towards equilibrium. And I think that's the big controversy that we face is the dynamic process that has prices and the profit signal lead us toward a particular direction where all these plans and purposes that initially diverge are somehow reconciled. That's the fundamental additional insight that your poem expresses so nicely. Yeah, I want to use that. I want to talk a little bit about order. In fact, let me backtrack and talk about the phrase emergent order. And then eventually, I hope we can get back to Don's point about how hard it is sometimes for people to see the idea that that there isn't somebody who sets the prices. Because I think that that really helps me see something I hadn't seen before. And I want to add that uh, one of the most extraordinary things, and Don, you and I talk about this all the time, you can read and think about emergent order for years and you still there's still things you don't fully appreciate or understand about it and I just it's a really it's a really deep and rich idea but I, I want to mention that I, the phrase itself emergent order uh, I prefer that to the phrase spontaneous order so which is also used to describe this it's one Hayek uses more often I think and I want to defend emergent order and then I'm going to point about why and I'm going to argue that even that's not a very good phrase either um, and I don't like spontaneous because the word spontaneous in English has something about what's going on. It's that it's just sort of happens. What's bad about it is that spontaneous also means sort of sudden and out of the blue. So you have spontaneous combustion and that's like, whoa, all of a sudden something that's sort of stable, all of a sudden it just explodes into flames. And I think that's, um, a very misleading way to think about the process of the, the myriad of people who are making their individual plans that lead to the result that uh, we're talking about. The second thing is that the word order, I think, gets overemphasized in some sense, and it causes us to not to sufficiently appreciate another aspect. So order means things that have patterns in them. So if I watch fish swimming in the ocean in a school, it's orderly. It looks like they're being choreographed, but of course, we know there's no choreographer there's no fish that's leading the pack so even a flock of geese which looks like there's a leader at the v at the front of the v that 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 goose is not <laughs> deciding where the flock goes which is nuts it's a it's it's an amazing thing um but m the order we're talking about is more than just patterns it's not just that oh between seven and nine in the morning there's a lot of traffic it's not just that wow there's a, there's, there's bread in, on the shelves the, the real thing that's going on that's the deepest part to me is that – and this is the key to the emergent part – is that there are forces that are in motion to respond to change. So the example – start with an animal kingdom, a bird example. If, if a hawk flies into the territory of a bunch of birds, 
they might turn into a flock and scare the hawk away. No one gets a uh, a text. The birds don't get little texts on their little cell phones saying, hawk around, can everybody kind of band together and let's fly around and scare the hawk away. So there's no choreography of that. And it's more than just that the birds sort of fly in patterns. They fly in patterns to achieve something. And similarly, if there's a shortage of flour, there's a bad uh, wheat crop one year, and there isn't enough flour to, to serve all the demanders of the products that flour uses in the coming year, someone's got to adjudicate that dispute. And what's remarkable, and I'll put a link up to the supply and demand version of this I tried to do, it's, it's an attempt to take the use of knowledge in society and bring it into a, into a supply and demand framework. But the amazing thing is how the prices, and it's, I can't, the language of English doesn't work very well here, but the prices use the information that people have about the alternatives that they might want to face or have to face in a world of a shortage of flour relative to the year before. So some people are going to have to do with less flour. Some people are going to use substitutes. Some people are going to look for new ways to create the products they've already had that don't use flour. Thousands of things are going to be set into motion to make people's lives pretty good, even though there's not as much flour as there used to be. And we're not going to have a war over it. The pizza lovers aren't going to uh, march on, on the city hall. They're not going to lobby, and they're not going to go beat up the people who are using up all the, the flour for rye bread, saying, hey, no, we deserve it. It's a sort of remarkably peaceful, strife-free, conflict-free thing that the world's constantly changing. It's constantly changing the amount of flour available and wheat available and how much people want gluten-free stuff versus other kinds of stuff, or they want whole wheat all of a sudden, they don't want white. All those changes how does that get coordinated? And so that's the order that's really profound. It's not just patterns. It's what I would call the unconscious coordination of people's desires that I think, Don, you alluded to, or maybe it was Mike. Uh, that's what's really extraordinary, and that's really hard to notice. And I think the phrase emergent order doesn't begin to capture that complexity. And you know, that's why we use things like the invisible hand uh, and other ways to try to convey that, that marvel. And, and, and even so, I think we fall short. Mike, you want to comment? Well, I, I prefer self-organizing system um, to emergent order. And the reason is that the, the order is certainly interesting, but the system of division of labor is actually very difficult to organize. And just allowing markets gives you a, a differentiated order that you might not expect. So uh, in the early 19th century, the, the German political economist von Kunin talked about the way that cities are self-organized. And I think it's a very deep insight. There's been a lot of work on it since, but he said that you're gonna, your cities are going to be surrounded by a ring of cattle farms farthest out because they need a lot of land and the, they, they're, you can transport them because they can walk. And the, right next to the city, you're going to have the little, uh, very expensive vegetables like tomatoes and things that are hard to transport. The, the way that the city is going to be organized by neighborhoods, all of that happens in a self-organizing way. Nobody has to have a meeting about it. Now, we use zoning. And sometimes perhaps there may be a justification for zoning, but it's not true that a city left to itself will just be this hodgepodge of different things. It's a self-organizing system. So that's the that's I, w I want to propose that as yet a third alternative. The only thing I want to add to that, and I'm not, I'm not let you comment, is that 
there's something, and we've talked about this before, but it's important to mention now. There are feedback loops. When you say it's a self-organizing system, there's something that holds it together. It's not a person. It's not a committee. It's not a central planner. Uh, it's the incentives of profit and loss and prices that hold the bread market together. It's the incentives of profit and loss and prices that caused, say, the tomato market in 1800 to be relatively close to the city, the tomato fields. But today they don't have to be because transportation changed. So the incentives change, the feedback loops change, and that allows that land to be used for something different. And that dynamism is just extraordinary. And that's to me, is what the study of economics is really about, along with what happens when you try to steer it and what are some of the unintended consequences? And is that worth it? It might be in some cases, not in others. But that to me is, is the essence of economics is seeing those connections uh, in that self-organizing process. Don? It, Hayek says somewhere, and I can't recall just where, uh, and this is not an exact quotation, but it's a br- brilliant insight, I think. He says that in order to uh, understand why things might or sometimes do go wrong, we first have to understand uh, why they why they work. What, what is it that makes them work? Um, if we don't fully appreciate the this marvel of the self-organized or emergent order-based market, all the talk about market failure and and what government can do to correct it is just off base um, because the, the 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 failure, whatever market failures we talk about, are in reference to. The, the the market as it actually works in reality, and so I, I get I, I'm increasingly distressed at at the um, I think almost pedestrian way in which modern economists think they understand the way markets work. They don't get the important point that Mike brought up a moment ago about the market as a process. They start with with everything being in equilibrium. They assume perfect knowledge and say, "Well, look, in reality, people don't have perfect knowledge, therefore the market." market must fail, so we have to rush in to correct it. But what we have to understand, of course, is how is it that the market works as well as it does, given that there is no arch on, given that people don't have perfect knowledge, given that people start off with all these divergent and often inconsistent plans. And yet what we see, by and large, as you point out, Russ, not perfectly, but by and large, we see an amazing, amazing Peace, amount of peaceful and productive cooperation among among people globally. We have, we have billions of people today uh, peacefully cooperating with each other. They're not aware of it in any conscious sense, but it's just an amazing fact that we should marvel at, and that and that we don't. And 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 well, I just want to emphasize the the importance of understanding the the, the marvelousness of this system of peaceful global cooperation made possible by the institutions of, of, of private property in a market economy. Mike, you want to comment? I have nothing to disagree with there. Um, I tend to be fascinated with cities and I would want to recommend to your listeners uh, a couple of works by Jane Jacobs, yeah. but in particular, The Death and Life of Great American Cities, who talks about the dynamism that you brought up and specifically talks about how attempts at planning, well-meaning attempts at planning, like your sort of scary guy that's standing up there with the uh, with the chessboard. In the video, in the video version. Yeah, in the, in, the, in the video version, which I hope the, the listeners take a look at, uh, the video version of the poem, the, that planner 
is the, the criticism that she makes of planning is so effective and interesting. And I think people with experience with cities, you need some analogy. It's the, the market seems so abstract. If we just go halfway and say cities are self-organizing systems, and let's recognize that it's the, the, the prices that give signals about how we should not only organize, but change, update the way that we've organized the structure of the city. And there's no, there's not, there's no we. It's the individuals acting alone, which improve the city, not the planner. So I'm going to push back against both of you and let you um, defend your views. So I'm going to play uh, interventionist here. Uh, so we're talking about how great markets are. Let's think about uh, the market for labor. So the market for labor has this extraordinary property, which is we alluded to earlier, which is the division of labor. There's this incredible sorting of people into various specialties and of course, our lives today are much more specialized in the labor force than they were, say, 200 or 100 or even 50 years ago. So that's an amazing thing, and no one's in charge of it. I used the example in a, a speech I gave that's up on the wonderfulloaf.org website of uh, sushi. You know, there's sushi all over America. If any town bigger than 50,000 people, you can, you can, there's a sushi restaurant. But who decided that, and who decided how many sushi, sushi chefs there are, and who decided how many sous chefs there are in that sushi restaurant and how many people there are who do other tasks, maybe make the rice and all of that, all those decisions, how many employees the baker has, those are all made by individuals doing the best they can, looking at market signals of prices and wages and trying to figure out if they can still make cover their costs if they add a new person or if they hire a specialist. And that's just an extraordinary thing that happens. So that's our view. That's our romance. And Don, as you said, I think there's a lot of, uh, I really liked what you said earlier about how, you know, we're, what makes us different is that we see the romance in the process that, that works, that it works at all. The other side, it, the glass is half empty. We're ha we see it as half full. They see it as half empty. We look at government. We see it as half empty. They see it as half full. They see, hey, it looks, does pretty well. So I think there's a certain, uh, perspective or lens that, that we have based on our ideology or philosophy of what works. And what doesn't work that tends to color our views of these kinds of processes, whether it's the political process uh, or the market process. But if I'm looking at wages in the labor market and it does this incredible thing of sorting people and encouraging people to invest in, say, medical school or economics or whatever it is, at the same time, there's a bunch of people, they're not doing so well. They come out into the labor force. The best they can do is a minimum wage job. And if it weren't for the minimum wage, they'd be making even less. So the other side, the people who aren't like us, who don't love the invisible hand or the market process or emergent order or the self-organizing system, say, well, yeah, it works pretty well, but there's a lot of people it, it really doesn't serve. And those folks, they can't afford good bread. They can't afford lots of things. They can't afford a nice car or enough clothing sometimes. And certainly around the world, that's true. And we got to do something to help them. So we can't just rely on this invisible hand, uncoordinated, unconscious cooperation, because for a lot of folks, it leads to misery and despair. And so you want to rave about how amazing it is that the market works at all. And I see some hungry people who can barely afford any bread, and I want to help them. So I have to tamper with that market. I have to put in a minimum wage. I have to put in safety regulations, because otherwise they're going to be exploited by that in that self-organizing system by uh, – Entrepreneurs who want to profit at their expense, take advantage of them, cut corners, et cetera, et cetera. So that's the, I think, the unromantic side. I just want to say for the record, I think all those things are true. 
I think there are a lot of entrepreneurs who want to cut corners. And so I, I'll come back and give my answer maybe in a little bit. But let's hear from you, uh, Don and Mike. Don, go first. Um, so the, the you, you're right, obviously. The, as you say often, the market and, – and by the way, those of us who are influenced by the Austrians uh, understand from the very beginning that markets aren't perfect. The people who you refer to, uh, I would have more confidence in their judgment if in their policy prescriptions they gave evidence that they actually understand how markets work. It's one thing to point out that markets aren't perfect in some idealized sense. It is another thing to write or speak about markets and evidence a failure to understand how they work. People who propose minimum wages, uh, I submit, don't understand how markets work. It's not that they're saying markets don't work perfectly. That's true. They are giving evidence that they don't understand the logic of a market because there would be other ways uh, for the state, better ways for the state to help the workers that these people uh, want to help. And so it's. It, I think a lot of the people, while the language is often couched in um, in you know, market failure terms, I think a lot of this language reveals that these people actually don't really understand. They certainly don't understand the way the market works in the way that we understand. Well, they don't the agree with. They don't agree with us. They think that the that the that the negatives. I mean, one way to think about this is the role of unintended consequences. I think if you think a lot enough about emergent order, whether it's in the natural world or the physical world, uh, the economic world. Uh, you start worrying about the fact that some of the things you do to help make things better don't always do so. And I use the analogy of the volume on the stereo. You come home from work, and I write about this in my book, The Price of Everything, I think. You come home from work and the music's really loud in the house and it's really annoying. And you realize, oh, your teenage son has turned up the stereo too loud with a bunch of music you don't like. And so you go find the volume and you turn it down. Uh, in a lot of these things, there's no volume knob. So we want to I think a lot of people want to turn up the volume on the wages, turn up the amount of the level of wages. And when they do so, it's not like turning up the volume of the stereo system. It has negative consequences that are not not so obvious. But the people who are in favor of that would argue that those consequences are small. Um, we used to worry about that. We don't need to anymore. I disagree with that. You do too, Don, I know. But I think that would be their their defense. Uh, Mike, what do, you, what, do you, what do you want to say? Well, the... Uh- my answer, let me keep it very brief, is almost a caricature of my own position. Um, I would concede that the dynamism and nimble changes that we see in markets are a benefit to many and perhaps most people, but not to everyone. And economists often make a mistake, I think, by saying free trade benefits everyone. Free trade, particularly in a system that now does not have free trade, harms a lot of people. A a movement to a more free trade system is going to harm a lot of people. A movement to a system that doesn't have the kind of regulations that have now been capitalized in all of the prices that we think of, that we use as signals, that'll harm a lot of people. So I, as you know, and we've talked about this, my solution to get rid of minimum wage laws, to get rid of a lot of restrictions on prices would be to say, You know, it's true. A lot of people are harmed by the nimbleness of the market. Let's have a basic income, which means that a benchmark underlying how bad off people can be 
is going to satisfy a lot of these objections without manipulating the price mechanism. The big problem that we have is using prices as information. So the advantage to me of basic income is that it allows the price system to work. Uh, Don, I know you have a lot to say about that. I don't know how much you want to share with us now, but you're free to go ahead. I, I think the subject <laughs> of, of, of a basic income is too big for the time we have. Agreed. But do you want to say anything about free trade harming people? Uh, uh, well, I think it's. I think the language is is bad. I understand what what Mike what Mike means by that, but but it, it, uh, uh, it, it, in fact, it, it if it's true that free trade harms people, then really what we're saying is that competition and change harm harm people. It's not just trade that happens to cross political borders that that winds up harming people. It's all sorts of any kind of economic change. Um, but I want to get back to an earlier point that was raised in, the, in our larger discussion. It has to do with this notion of uh, emergent order and the market process. And that is a, a really deep un understanding of economics reveals that so-called market failures and market imperfections th themselves are often useful in in creating the, the the market improvements. Joseph Schumpeter was very good on this. If you examine an economy at any period of time, you can find all sorts of imperfections in it. But because entrepreneurs, business people, consumers even, uh, on the spot notice these imperfections and have incentives to, to adjust to them, those imperfections are very much what give rise to the actions that bring the market into uh, uh, better coordination. And so it, 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 the, the imperfections themselves at any moment in time are in an important way part of the market process. And those imperfections um, are in this larger, higher level sense, uh, not imperfections at all. They're just part of the reality that, that fuels and, and, and guides the market process, and so it's, we we have. To, I think we have to be really really careful with the market failure language. It's too easy to abuse and to be misled by it. Well, that'd be another subject for a different episode as well, but um, it's it's certainly relevant for what we're talking about here. I want to close with um, another defensive interventionism and try to think about some ways we might talk about when uh, emergent order or self organizing systems when they work well and when they don't. And that's the following. Uh, I say in the poem, the key to the process is prices and the freedom to shop where you want. And what I'm trying to say there in a short – and then I say competition among all the bakers. Make sure that they rise before dawn to make sure that the bread's near perfection, et cetera. And again, I, I hedge it. I say near perfection because it's not perfect. There's obviously things go wrong all the time. Obviously, a bakery can – have a great reputation and abuse its customers by relying on that and slowly degrade quality. Uh, sometimes they do run out of stuff. Uh, it's not perfect. The question is, is it better than the alternative? That would be one question. And the question would be for whom? But the, the point I want to emphasize here is that there's a lot of regulation in the system and a lot of intervention that doesn't change the fundamentals of the market process. And this gets it a little bit of what Mike was driving at. So you put a tax on bread, there's still going to be lots of bread on the shelves. You can subsidize bread, and there's still going to be lots of bread, maybe too much, but there's going to be a lot of bread. Uh, you can regulate the quality. You can have safety inspections. Uh, you may argue that they're not necessary, that reputation and brand name would, would protect consumers. Uh, 
you might have some antitrust regulation to make sure there's enough competition. And that's not going to harm anything unless it's done badly, and sometimes it is. But uh, there's a lot of regulation that doesn't ruin the fundamental processes we're talking about. The one thing that does ruin it is a price control, it seems to me. And I'm interested in your response. So in Venezuela, as I mentioned earlier, that's one of those places where – There's nothing on the shelves. Literally, tragically, people are starving to death because there's not enough food. And one of the reasons there's not enough food is the government tried to control the price of food and the profitability of food, and it didn't work out the way they had hoped. Uh, That's a disaster, literally a human, horrible human disaster. So I want to defend regulation. I think I think you can be in favor of, of the invisible hand and still favor some kinds of regulation. Uh, you can certainly favor some kinds of antitrust if it actually works. And Donna, know you have a, a different perspective on that. But a lot of people, when they when they hear my poem, think, "Yeah, but if you don't have government intervention, you, you're going to have conglomerates and too much monopoly, and then they can exploit consumers." And that that happens, and it it can be very bad. My counterpoint is fine. You can intervene in all kinds of ways. You can put in some uh, some regulations about quality if you want. You can put in some safety regulations for the workers. Uh, you, you're going to have impacts that, that aren't going to be what you intended, but you're not going to change the fundamental availability of bread of different kinds if you stick to that. And you should know about that process when you design those regulations, as, as Don, I think you pointed out earlier, because if you don't understand it, you're going to have more of those unintended consequences than you think. So my view is, whether you're an interventionist, relatively inter- interventionist, or relatively non-interventionist as we are, uh, you still have to understand how the process works, and you still have to have some appreciation of how markets coordinate information and how prices work. Because if you're not careful, you're going to mess up. And I think the best argument – I don't agree with you, Mike – but the best argument you can make for a guaranteed income is much better to do that than to try to, say, put a wage floor on or a minimum wage of some kind or – tampering with those those price signals uh, but that that I think the fundamental idea that that markets work pretty well even with various kinds of interventions is really important and there's certain kinds that are much worse than others Mike you want to react to that and then let Don go yes I think regulation is sometimes motivated by a concern for asymmetric bargaining power and sometimes out of paternalism So if I'm a worker, if I'm unable to secure the level of safety and pay and the mix of safety and pay that I want, it must be because there's asymmetric bargaining power. I'm not sure that's true. Over time, the big increases in safety, shorter work week, and higher wages were driven by increased productivity of labor, not by government regulation. But then there's also the paternalism problem. We think workers are going to take too much in pay and not enough in safety. And so we prevent them from negotiating the contract that we want. The reason that I favor something like basic income is that that would be exactly the argument that you made. The state should just get out of the business of deciding what mix of safety work hours and pay that workers want, and they'll find their own optimum. Don? Uh, I agree completely that the worst thing you can do uh, to a market is, or to a society, is, is price controls. Um, the market can take a lot of beating with high taxes, inefficient regulations, uh, that, and, and, and keep performing reasonably well. You might not even notice in any grand sense the, the, the costs. 
But controlling prices is a calamity. And Venezuela is only the most, as you point out, only the most recent of a long line of historical examples of that. So I, I agree completely that that uh, market set prices uh, with you know some conditions for freedom to en- enter and uh, exit uh, an industry. But market set prices are are really the if you have to put your finger on one key, it's market set prices that is the key to the success of the whole system. And while reasonable people can and do disagree over the proper role, of the proper extent of taxation, proper extent of regulation, uh, I don't think anyone who knows any economics at all uh, uh, can disagree about the importance of allowing prices and wages to move in response to market forces and not be controlled by state dictates. And I'm just going to close with an example of, of these kind of regulations and make it clear what I'm talking about. So I think a lot of people, going back to Don's point about – to me, it's some of this is about imagination. Economics helps you imagine things that you don't notice or, or see and helps you understand how they actually work. So I think a lot of people would argue that if you don't have some kind of regulation, say, on safety of products, then – Producers are going to cut corners, look for cost savings, and produce dangerous products. And so one way to avoid that is to have inspections and to have certain regulations about how products are made. And that's what I would call the top-down solution. The bottom-up solution, the emergent solution, is that we allow brand names to emerge. We allow firms to try to create a reputation for themselves for creating safety. And we allow for third parties to come in, like um, uh, Consumer Reports or Underwriters Laboratory to certify that this product's been tested, it's safe. And we understand that's imperfect. We understand that Underwriters Laboratory might take a bribe someday. We understand that they might let us down. We understand they might make a mistake. Uh, we understand that it's it's very expensive to test certain things. Maybe they won't do it thoroughly enough. So we get all that. It's imperfect. We also understand that the government's imperfect. They take bribes too. They don't have the, maybe the motivation and the checks and balances and the feedback loops that, that private reputation and brand name have. So it's flawed also. So the way I tend to look at it, and we'll close with this, and like, I'll let each of you comment while apologizing that I took more than my share of this conversation. So I appreciate you playing so nicely um, and, um, and, and letting, letting me talk about this idea more than I maybe should. But when I look at those two choices between the government top-down regulation and the bottom-up emergence of brand name, reputation, uh, trust, certain cultural things that, that encourage people to not uh, produce unsafe products. You know, they both have flaws. And so it's, in some dimension, it's an empirical question, which one is best. And we might have a different answer in certain settings, certain markets, uh, as to what works better in some than others. We might say, well, you know, I really don't like the idea of concentrating power in the government's hands. So I'm almost always going to rely on the on the marketplace. But just to make a plea to the listeners and and readers and viewers of my poem, you can be really different than I am uh, on these philosophical issues. You can argue that markets don't work that well. You can argue that, yeah, I'm not so sure that brand name is going to be sufficient. Maybe we want some kind of safety inspection of, say, agriculture or the food in the grocery. And I think that's fine. Just make sure you understand what's going on in the background that you're intervening with and might disrupt. And if you understand that and still think it's worth it, then I'm eager to hear your case. 
Don, what, you you go ahead, go first, then Mike, you can comment and close us out. Yeah, I, I, I would dispute anyone who says, eh, markets really don't work all that well. Uh, as your poem points out, and as lots of economic history points out, markets work incredibly well. To, saying markets don't work well is different than saying markets are uh, imperfect. Of course, they're not perfect. Um, but but we must never lose sight of the fact that markets aren't just so-so. Uh, markets do, uh, just objectively speaking, work extraordinarily well when prices are allowed uh, to move up and down. Uh, and the remaining imperfections, uh, you're right, we can dispute how we, uh, if we should and how best to address them. But the remaining imperfections are a very tiny fraction of the overall picture. The big picture uh, point should be how well uh, and, and remarkably markets, in fact, work. Mike? I'm a thoroughgoing directionalist rather than a destinationist. A directionalist is someone who is concerned at the particular margin that we're regulating now. So I think a lot of economists get hung up on the fact, you know, we could get rid of the Food and Drug Administration. Well, almost no one favors getting rid of the Food and Drug Administration because they're worried about asymmetric information about drugs and the fact that it could be very dangerous. That's not where we're regulating right now. Where we're regulating right now is California just passed an amazing law that said independent bookstores basically cannot sell signed copies of books because they can't be sure that those signatures are real. Give me a break. Yeah. I mean, if, if, the, if the margin where we're regulating is at that level, we have a long way to go before we would have to face the difficult questions about whether can brand names handle drugs. Surely brand names can handle signed copies of books. My guests today have been Don Boudreau and Mike Bunker. Gentlemen, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Always a pleasure. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.